Uh, I'm now going to say a few words uh, about our speaker, who may be familiar to many of you from Radio 4's Thought for the Day or from other settings. Uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad was born Timothy Winter, educated just a mile away from here at Westminster School and studied Arabic with great success at Cambridge University. I want to to bring his uh, story of coming to faith very uh, close to our imaginations by telling you a, a beautiful story of his conversion to Islam. This is what he said in the independent newspaper about four years ago. In my teens, I was sent off by my parents to a cottage in Corsica on an exchange with a very vigorous French-Jewish family with four daughters. They turned out to be enthusiastic nudists. I remember being on the beach and seeing conjured up before my adolescent eyes every 15-year-old boy's most fervent fantasy. There was a moment when I saw peach juice running off the chin of one of these bathing beauties, and I had a moment of realization. The world is not just the consequence of material forces. Beauty is not something that can be explained away just as an aspect of brain function. That was the first time I became remotely interested in anything beyond the material world. It was an unpromising beginning, you might say. In a Christian context, sexuality is traditionally seen as a consequence of the fall, but for Muslims, it is an anticipation of paradise. So I can say, I think, that I was validly converted to Islam by a teenage French Jewish nudist. (laughs) Isn't that the most wonderful story? After graduating, um, Abdul Hakim studied at the University of Al-Azhar in Egypt and worked in Saudi Arabia before returning to England to study Turkish and Persian. Since then, he's become one of the most respected Islamic scholars in the West and is now the Sheikh Zayed Lecturer of Islamic Studies at Cambridge University. His work covers many areas, including interfaith dialogue and the origins of suicidal terrorism. Our autumn series, The Curse and the Promise, began with a consideration of peace and has continued with presentations from a Jew and a Christian, both of whom wrestled with their own traditions, mixed heritage in relation to violence. It's with great expectation we now turn to a leading British Muslim to help us explore the nature of Islam and how to address Islam's heritage and present reality in relation to issues of violence and peace. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad. Thank you so much, uh, Sam. And may I begin by uh, expressing my my very deep gratitude at uh, this uh, invitation to be able to speak in this uh, hugely uh, significant place. I feel unworthy and humbled, but I'm grateful for the opportunity nonetheless. One of my favorite novels is called Death and the Dervish. It's the major work of the 20th century Bosnian novelist Mesa Selimovic. It's been turned into something of an icon in post-independence Bosnia with boulevards and uh, high schools, various public libraries now all carrying his name. In the contested, competitively loved city of Sarajevo, which sometimes calls itself the Balkan Jerusalem, 
Where religious fault lines only a generation ago collapsed into catastrophe, he's taken as a helpful icon of Bosnian togetherness, a Muslim anxious about religious divides, Orthodox, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, which under Tito had been forcibly subsumed under the slogan of brotherhood and unity in a new secular world in which class and not religion would henceforth be the criterion of worth and identity. Selimovic, child of a city both divided and united by its Abrahamic plurality, was not a happy man, nor did he write happy books. Death and the Dervish, a dark tale in which all the action seems to happen at night, tells us the story of the head of a Dervish retreat prominent in the city during the 18th century. He is a respectable, literate preacher who presides competently over his order's serene and complex Sufi ceremonies. His comfort zone is invaded, however, when he learns that his brother has been arrested and sent to prison on a uh, serious but frustratingly vague and misty charge. The city police and bureaucracy are willing to offer no clear idea of what the offence might have been. In this Kafkaesque darkness, the imam prevaricates, hesitant to act, intervene or speak up on his brother's behalf until, some few days later, the news arrives of his brother's execution. His agony and shock are described in chapter 6, which bears a Quranic quotation, My God, I have no one besides you and my brother. This is, of course, from the story of Cain and Abel, and he feels the parallel spreading like a stain of dark ink across his soul. In a way, he's a little like Hamlet, whose own indecision, apparently peaceable and benign, allowed moral darkness to prevail in his family, leading to a terrible guilt and his own destruction. Shattered by the news, Selimovic's dervish stands up before his mosque congregation in the dim candlelight. They all already know what has happened. And he says this. Sons of Adam, I will not give a sermon. I could not, even if I wanted to. But I believe that you would hold it against me if I did not speak about myself now, at this moment, the darkest in my life. What I have to say has never been more important to me, but I am not trying to gain anything. Nothing except to see compassion in your eyes. I did not call you my brothers, although you are that more than ever, but rather sons of Adam, invoking that which we all have in common. This crime concerns you as well, since you know the scripture, whoever kills an innocent man, it is as if he has killed all men. They have killed all of us countless times, my murdered brothers, but we are horrified when they strike our most beloved. Maybe I should hate them, but I cannot. I do not have two hearts, one for hatred and one for love. The heart that I have knows only grief now. I'm like Abel, to whom God sent a crow that dug up the soil to teach him how to bury the body of his dead brother. I, the unfortunate Abel, more unfortunate than a black crow. I did not save him while he was alive. I did not see him after he died. Now I have no one except myself, my Lord, and my sorrow. Give me strength that I will not despair from brotherly and humanly grief or poison myself with hatred. I repeat the words of Noah, separate me from them and judge us. And now go home and leave me alone with my misfortune. It is easier to endure now that I have shared it with you. This is, as you may have guessed, the beginning, not the end of the book, which then charts his agonizing descent into doubt and amorality. 
But in this tragic soliloquy, contemplating the claustrophobic darkness which now surrounds him, the dervish is trying to voice several painful insights about our human condition. All revolve around what his language calls malodushnost, which means roughly to have a diminished soul. When we fail the absolute duty and challenge of fraternity, we become smaller and frailer, and the experience of that shriveling of the soul can be as painful as the memory of our original dereliction. Selimovic tells us that how we discharge our duty to our brother, which in the rather thinly populated world of Adam's time essentially meant to everyone, is going to make or break our spirit. Nothing agitates and abrades the human consciousness quite like the remembering of violence, weakness, vulnerability, and our own reluctance to do something about those afflictions. Complicity causes us to rot. For the rest of our lives, we relive the moment when we seem to hold in our hands the miracle of free will, an actual fork in the road opened before us. Now, although we can look back, we cannot turn back. Put to the test, we were not our brother's keeper. There is a tragic depth here, but it is not the tragic depth of he who would simply counsel a peaceable response. The dervish's homily asks for forgiveness for the bearer of fault witness who has destroyed his brother. Could I do the same in his shoes? Probably not. Yet it cannot end here. Forgiveness and passivity are unnatural bedfellows. Forgiveness is more whole and healing when we know that we might just become instruments of some just resolution. Because we are made in God's image, inertness is foreign to our constitution. In the prospect of restitution, even of some form of justice, there is a healing. We are not to sentence ourselves or others to permanent guilt and distress at the memory of our own inaction or that of others. It is monstrous to impose or to expect such corrosion. There is life for you in restorative justice, O possessors of souls, says the Muslim scripture. To, give, to forgive a murderer may be a miraculous sign of forbearance and trust in God's creation, of transcending the certainly heathen impulse of revenge. Restorative justice, however, is something else. It is not tied to revenge. It can bring a certain lightening of the burden. The relatives of crime victims sometimes speak of what they call closure when a due sentence has been passed, say, on a murderer or a child molester. In the United States, families traditionally have the right to witness the murderer's execution. In our soft Europe, we wince at what we dismiss as transatlantic crudeness, and perhaps there's a sort of absent-mindedness here, rather as we happily eat chicken sandwiches, but have no particular desire to see how the chicken's life ended. But what are called the right-to-view laws only endure because families do often report a certain strange peacefulness once they have witnessed the execution. Again, this is not simply the acceptable face of revenge. Brooks Douglas, who wrote Oklahoma's new right-to-view statute a decade after his parents were murdered, said this, It is not retaliation or retribution that I seek in witnessing the execution of the man who killed my parents. It is closure. Closure on an era of my life which I never chose to enter. Closure of years of anger and hate. Justice does not normally remedy a crime, but we are reassured when we recall that it may help to preserve the order of the world. Despite our squeamishness, we know that when justice is rightly administered, some sort of holiness fills the air, a presence of the mysterium tremendum, the deep solemn mystery of God and his will for equity and safety among his servants. 
even St. Paul, sometimes read as an abolisher of the Jewish law, at least, also writes in Romans that the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. He's telling us that it's not just useful, but holy. Whether or not we support the death penalty, which I cite only as an example, we are likely to recognise that despite our anxieties, the Queen's peace will always depend on punishment. If convicted, Cain ought to be punished. And to fail to punish will not only endanger the good order of the world, but it's likely to putrefy our souls. It is not justice or forgiveness, but we may ideally hope justice and forgiveness. This is, a few radical pacifists accepted, a pretty normal understanding in our three monotheisms. But as so often in our chaotic human world, the matter does not stop with crime and punishment. What if there is no constable and no magistrate? What if one is a refugee or stateless or living in a failed state? What if there is no human arbiter who might re-establish a settled pattern of life and bring offenders to book? If one is, say, in a Croydon riot and the police are nowhere in sight, what is the right course of action? May one defend one's shop and family against looters and thieves? This is not, of course, just a matter for theologians. Section 76 of the 2008 Criminal Justice Act sets out our common law understanding of legitimate self-defence. Turning its pages, I find that subsection 5A even makes it legal for me to use disproportionate but not grossly disproportionate force when defending myself against an intruder who has broken into my house. The courts will generally consider any violent action which I honestly and instinctively think is necessary for a legitimate purpose to fall within the purpose of legitimate self-defence, as defined in English law. In fact, this subsection, introduced as recently as 2013, significantly expands my right to use violence defend to defend my property, family and home. The same applies in a public place if I witness, for instance, a mugging on the Piccadilly line and become involved in the defence of the victim. In some cases, I may even be prosecuted for inaction. I am very much my brother's keeper. Again, on the issue of self-defence, where the police are not to hand, we are likely to be united. Who respects the bystander who just passes by on the other side when a woman is being molested or seeks to intervene only with words of pious exhortation? But what if we enlarge our compass again and zoom out to view the great collective issues of war and peace? Clearly, unless we are convinced pacifists, even on this macro scale, we will allow human communities, and not just individuals, the use of force in self-defence. If Israeli soldiers or settlers try to demolish Palestinian homes, to take one topical example, it is hard to deny their victims, as individuals and communities, the right to raise their hands in self-defence. And this surely applies on the national level as well. To remain with Palestine, since it has been cited so emphatically by a previous speaker in this series, there would seem to be no ground in our English legal precedent and historical norms to deny the Palestinians the right to defend themselves. To propose a simple thought experiment, if what befell Palestine in 1948 had happened to us here in England, we would presumably have fought. Neighbouring states would have come to our aid, and probably many of us would still be fighting. Are we now feeling a little less comfortable, perhaps fidgeting ever so slightly and wondering where tonight's speaker is likely to go? You are right to fidget. I do so as well. But if we are morally serious, we ought to look this one in the eye. 
Should self-defence apply only to our own British selves, while on others we wish an interminable peace process, while the lands of the victims are steadily curated away as a whole country is subjected to a kind of death by a thousand cuts? At the end of October, I read on the website of the human rights activist Philip Weiss that, quote, Israeli forces have killed 65 Palestinians this month, including 14 children. The Palestinians, in their weakness, are trying to resist the progressive confiscation of their land. I supposed that we would do the same if England and our own suburbs were facing the bulldozers. So why do we find their resistance so morally difficult? If I fight back when my house in Croydon is vandalised by intruders and would fight back if my country was occupied, why should this not introduce a universal principle available to other races, peoples and faith groups? As the poet Rumi says, knowledge and wealth and office and rank and fortune are a mischief in the hands of the evil-natured. Therefore, the jihad was made obligatory on true believers for this purpose, namely that they might take the spear point from the hand of the madman. So far, I think that our argument has been roughly consensual. I've given a topical example, but the rule seems to be rather simple and universal. Of course, if someone tries to stab my wife, I should fight back. If my country is invaded and occupied, I should defend it. The law is holy precisely when it prevents or punishes aggression. The three monotheisms historically have largely concurred on this. So why is it that at this point in the argument we feel a certain agitation? I think that the reason is not, in fact, located in an assumption that non-Europeans ought not to have a right which we would claim for ourselves. It is more disturbing and challenging. It is to do with unease over the due boundaries of that resistance. Does subsection 5A explain the dividing line between excessive and grossly excessive force? It does not. Can religion do so? On the face of it, it seems to insist that it does. Here, for instance, is the Quran. This is chapter 22, verse 60. And if one has responded to injustice to no greater extent than the injury he received and is again tyrannized, God will help him, for God is pardoning and forgiving. The medieval commentator Razi here gives the sense. The believer who fights proportionately but is thereafter still the victim of aggression will certainly be given victory by God. But he adds... Even though God gives you this guarantee of victory, he offers you something which is better, forgiveness and pardon. This is the principle of proportionality, which, as the American scholar John Kelsey has shown, is a key principle in both Islamic and Christian theories of just war. And in both traditions, the option of forgiveness is provided as well. This sounds easy, but how easy is it for religious scholars to explain proportionality in practice? Probably, if we're honest, not very easy at all. Every human situation is different. It has its own logic. The boundary between legitimate and transgressive violence will fluctuate wildly from encounter to encounter. In a life-or-death situation, emotions can flare, and under such circumstances, we find ourselves doing things which posterity may or may not find it possible to forgive. And yet... Everyone asks religion to furnish guidance and to keep it as clear as possible. What must we and what must we not do to protect the victim or to prevent a repeat offence? General injunctions to act morally and proportionately can abound in a generously gaseous profusion, but what combatants and victims would really like to hear is clear and practical instructions. 
Nowadays, many might urge the setting aside of religious talk in favour of an allegedly neutral and objective secular theory of the right conduct of war and international affairs. Leave Hebron or Kabul or Srinagar to the diplomats. But this often turns out in practice not to help very much. Just as subsection 5a cannot really tell me when I should use a kitchen knife on a burglar, so also the brave declarations of the United Nations, in themselves so precious, seem only to offer limited guidance. It is fine that we have a convention on cluster munitions, for instance, and I find it a source of pride that the United Kingdom is a signatory. But we all know how blunt an instrument the law is in practice. Whatever the law might be, the ultimate decision in the real world is likely to stay in the hands of the combatants. In our literature, perhaps the best-known recital of this fear is Shakespeare's Henry V, as the king warns the people of a besieged town that when his soldier's blood is up, neither here nor any moral law can answer for the consequences. These are his great and sobering lines. I will not leave the half-achieved Harfleur till in her ashes she lie buried, The gates of mercy shall be all shut up, and the fleshed soldier, rough and hard of heart, in liberty of bloody hand shall range with conscience wide as hell, mowing like grass, your fresh fair virgins and your flowering infants. What is it then to me if impious war, arrayed in flames like to the prince of fiends, do with his smirched complexion all fell feats in linked to waste and desolation? What is to me when you yourselves are cause if your pure maidens fall into the hand of hot and forcing violation? What reign can hold licentious wickedness when down the hill he holds his fierce career? We may as bootless spend our vain command upon the enraged soldiers in their spoil as send precepts to the Leviathan to come ashore. In our modern scenarios, not enough has changed. Generals and politicians will still shrug and blame the chaos of war itself and the passions which it perhaps uniquely inflames. Conventions and rules for armed conflict are right and proper, but the boundary between necessary and grossly excessive force cannot be safely or successfully policed by the instructions of anxious bureaucrats at the United Nations. All too often, the men in blue helmets appear after the last shot has been fired to investigate atrocities and to file reports. Above all, religion must surely step in here to define, in a world of white-hot, hasty passions in which deliberative judgment is often difficult or swept completely away, the limits of self-defence. What is the use of religion, I ask myself, if it cannot help me to discern my own spirit and know the difference between justice and vengeance, between proportionate and excessive self-defence, between protecting myself from a subsequent lifetime of guilt at my own inaction and a no less ravishing guilt at my own excessive and vicious action. We religionists will need to be honest about this. Have all rabbis spoken out against what has happened to the Palestinians? Did all Anglican bishops condemn Bomber Harris during the Second World War? And what precisely were the Slovak bishops doing? And in the modern Islamic world, how many are condemning suicide bombings against random Israelis and others? Some do but we are haunted by the fact that some do not. Here, surely, there is a shameful trahison des clercs. There is a, a sort of excuse for which we reach. In 1943, we might have thought that the Reich would surrender if her beautiful cities were reduced to smoking rubble. It was a partial, ill-informed judgment of its time, 
and 600,000 civilians died. Today, some might imagine that the fate of the Palestinians will be improved rather than exacerbated by suicide bombing, a practice unknown to Muslims until some 20 years ago. That, too, is surely the consequence of emotion, excitement, and even a kind of fear and despair driven by current events and relentless media frenzy. Yet surely we find such excuses underwhelming and distressing at best. I myself once stayed in a refugee camp near Jerusalem where I found that some did indeed still defend terrorism because they felt that they had no other weapon. But most, I found, felt shamed and humiliated. Their claim to be on a pristine moral high ground, the weak and poor victims of Israel's military Goliath, a noble sense of self which sustained them and in some measure healed them in their exile, was now obscurely besmirched. Justice is a healing, to be sure, but ugly disproportion adds to the soul's distress, heaping on our wounds the desperate feeling of shame. Here we ought to stand, I feel. How terrible that religion, whose rich resources for helping us with anger management and self-control seem so much deeper than any international convention could ever be, should sometimes seem to act as a magnifying glass for our rage and desperation, and find through a disastrous casuistry some theology of the moment which allows us to defend the indefensible in the name of faith. Read an Al-Qaeda justification of suicide bombing, and one will be struck by the vast effort made to reconfigure ancient texts and values to deliver what is taken to be a strategically useful weapon. This is what we might call the Guantanamo school of scriptural interpretation. Treat the text badly enough, and it will end up saying whatever we want to hear. And who is there who will intervene to rescue the texts from this kind of torture? Now, my talk this evening must certainly not be a mere commentary on current events, but Muslims clearly do need to explicate this present and very new crisis, not least because of the disgrace which it brings. One needs to make the point again and again to a dismayed world that classical Sunni Islam has nothing to do with the new zealotries, the phenomenon of tenfir, as we call it, that which is so vehement that in the name of the one God it ironically repels humanity from the monotheistic principle itself. Why does the Nigerian group, Boko Haram, not only attack churches but also explode massive suicide bombs in Sunni mosques? Because its theology is not recognized as Sunni. Boko Haram's founder, Muhammad Yusuf, who established the Ibn Taymiyyah Mosque in the northern city of Maiduguri, studied with a certain Sheikh Ja'far Muhammad Adam, a graduate not of a mainstream Sunni university, but of the Saudi Islamic University in Medina. Sheikh Ja'far came to distance himself from Muhammad Yusuf's extremism, but the genealogy is noted by many Nigerians to this day. In Indonesia, the religious scholars have noted the strong convergence between Saudi types of Puritanism recently exported to the country and the doctrinal ideologies of some of the country's most intransigent radical groups. In Iraq, during the years of sanctions, some Saudi agencies were working hard to create a network of fundamentalist colleges, some of their graduates eventually joining the pollulating sea of radical factions which emerged after the 2003 invasion. The determination evident in some Saudi institutions to push the Islamic world in the direction of a puritanical literalism, lubricated by oil wealth and excellent relations with America, has over the past few years placed traditional Sunni Muslims on the defensive. 
at a time when the Muslim world most needs to marshal its resources for dealing with the philosophical, moral, and spiritual crises and challenges of our age, these institutions have issued a siren call to a desert puritanism hostile to any kind of philosophical theology or mysticism or the classical formulations of Islamic jurisprudence. Instead of the careful wisdom of ages directing our wisdom of the scriptures, there are only our very fallible convictions about how the earliest Muslims might have behaved had they been in modern Iraq. (coughs) The timing for that sea change has been truly disastrous. For most of the 20th century, Muslim scholars strove to interpret and reinterpret their ancient and hallowed legislation in ways that could allow Muslims some workable accommodation, if not agreement, with the emerging global consensus. The Sharia, which Muslim scholars have always agreed, is not a single body of statutes, but a rich and diverse legal tradition, turned out to lend itself admirably well to such a project. In particular, the practice known as Tanqih al-Manat, identifying the context for laws in order to determine their current form and application, and Maslaha Mursala, taking due account of public interest in utility, moved the jurists of the great seats of Muslim learning in the direction of accommodation which was taken to be an authentic, not a compromised, jurisprudential strategy in a time of complex challenges. This ironic tendency saw itself as profoundly rooted in the assurance that God's law exists to instantiate mercy, not hardship, far from representing a concession to a secular age, as the fundamentalists alleged, it maintained a prudential option for gentleness which long predated the impact of the modern world. Even in the 16th century, the great Ottoman jurist Birgavi was urging this. In our time, it is impossible, I repeat, impossible, to take the more stringent interpretation in any legal matter. And it was this kind of wisdom that permitted the emergence of an Ottoman and Levantine cosmopolitanism in which different denominations were able to thrive uh, thrive and interact for centuries. By contrast we have now the new Puritanism, intolerant of internal Muslim difference and maximally suspicious of non-Muslim intent. Let me cite just one example. Most Muslims are quite disturbed by the verdict of the leading Saudi scholar, the late Muhammad bin Saleh al-Uthaymeen, who wrote this. Today, why should we not wage war on America, Russia, France and England? What is the reason? It is because we lack the power and weaponry which they have developed in this age. What is in our hands resembles kitchen knives by comparison, opposing rockets. What precise message is this sending to Muslims in the West? That the only reason why they are not at war with the host countries is because of a disparity in military hardware. That seems to be the implication of the Sheikh's dictum. But this view is eccentric, regarded with abhorrence by more mainstream Sunni scholarship. The more normal view is articulated by the Mauritanian jurist Abdullah bin Bayah, who tells us this. The prophet, may God bless him and give him peace, says, Not one of you has faith until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. Brother here does not only mean your brother Muslim, but it refers to the greater and broader brotherhood of our Adamic nature. It is a brotherhood in the sense that we are all from Adam, that Adam is the father of us all. We have to be good citizens because an excellent Muslim is also an excellent citizen in the society he lives in. In addition, we have to recognize that creation itself is a creation of diversity. It is a creation in which you see variations of colors. God did not make all the trees one, and he did not make all the animals one. He diversified his creation. He diversified even our colors and our languages, and he did all this for a wisdom. 
Not only that, God made us on different religions and different paths, and he did that intentionally because there is a divine wisdom in the differences that we have. The new fundamentalisms, often fueled by petrodollars, treat this ancient wisdom with suspicion and contempt. And so the story of contemporary Islamic extremism is so often that each movement is succeeded by one more extreme still, as we saw with the splintering of radical movements in Algeria, and as currently we see al-Qaeda giving way to movements that are even more radical and outrageous, which turn on it and attack it. Under such wildly anarchic and furious circumstances, the only option for traditional Sunni scholarship is often to flee or face execution. In areas controlled by extremists, Sunni scholars may be persecuted or killed. In other places, however, they may face a different fate, brutal co-option by secular regimes. In an increasing number of countries, they are forbidden to preach their own sermons, having to read out a state sermon instead. Criticism of government abuse and corruption is savagely punished. They have hence found themselves caught between two fires, with the result that everywhere their authority and reach is being eroded. Still, we do find that they are unanimous in their condemnation of al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the other new Tanfiri movements. Where mainstream voices are silenced or repressed, it becomes easier for the extremists to step in. But here, Muslims need to grapple with a painful question. One can comprehend the new fundamentalism's rejection of classical forms of religious authority. But can one so easily account for the fact that so many young people do not only reject the classical Sunni rules, but seem to reach for disturbingly brutal new interpretations? The existence of a possible extreme has always been known in the Islamic world, although it has, in fact, very seldom won favour. In fact, the Prophet spoke against Khulu, which translates very well as extremism, saying that some people go into religion so hard that they come out the other side as an arrow passes through its target. And he also warned, On the day of judgment there shall be two people for whom I will not intercede, an unjust arbitrary ruler and an extremist who departs from religion by his way of entering it. It is clear that the prophet despised the type of the fanatic. So why is that extreme end of the spectrum being populated now? Is it enough simply to blame Saudi largesse? Clearly, it is not a sufficient explanation. Doctrinal aberration has been a factor, but not the only one. We need a further interpretation of a more numinous kind. How to diagnose the iron in the soul, which causes young people to reach for the most extreme available interpretation? Let us step back and try to find a few parallels. Take, for instance, the atrocities of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. One explanation for them points to the extreme humiliation the population had suffered under the previous administration, intensified by American aerial bombing that, according to one estimate, claimed 100,000 civilian lives. In fact, three times as many bombs were dropped on Cambodia than had landed on Japan during the totality of the Second World War. The countryside was literally torn apart or incinerated with napalm. As one Western journalist observed, it is difficult to imagine the intensity of their hatred towards those who are destroying their villages and property. The monster called Pol Pot crawled out of this cauldron, determined to shatter traditional society and to rebuild a new Maoist order which would restore his people's self-respect and heal their humiliation. Another case, perhaps more familiar, 
This time it is Hitler in 1940, arriving for the signing of France's capitulation in the famous railway carriage at Compiègne. The American correspondent, William Shirus, saw his face and wrote this. His expression, a sort of scornful inner joy at being present at this great reversal of fate. It is a magnificent gesture of defiance or burning contempt for this place now and all that it has stood for in the 22 years since it witnessed the humbling of the German Empire. In those two decades that produced Hitler, Germany had been subjected to the extreme humiliations of the Treaty of Versailles. The crippling war reparations were described by John Maynard Keynes as a Carthaginian peace which would destroy Germany. In that world of unemployment, high for inflation and debt, the madness of Nazism took root easily, even in the land of Goethe and Schubert. In the contemporary Middle East, decades of economic and social mismanagement by desperately corrupt regimes, which themselves replaced the humiliating years of colonial rule, produced a weakness which then enabled Western invasion of Iraq. The exact motivations and circumstances for that may or may not be unveiled when we finally get to see the Chilcot report. However, even Tony Blair, not a man given to undue self-criticism, has conceded that the 2003 invasion was a factor in the rise of Tanfiri extremism. But before the invasion, there were the sanctions. Who now remembers the harrowing letter sent by the Iraqi Medical Association to the British Medical Journal in 2001, which said... Thousands of Iraqis are still dying from malnutrition, infectious diseases, and the effects of shortages or unavailability of essential drugs. More and more children are dying from cancer, probably related to contamination of the environment with depleted uranium. UNICEF calculated that around half a million children died as a result of the sanctions. Most notoriously, Madeleine Albright was asked on live television... We have heard that half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died in Hiroshima. And you know, is the price worth it? Albright replied, we think the price is worth it. Into this apocalyptic situation came the invasion, bringing yet another episode and experience of humiliation. It's probably in the detention camps where, as at Guantanamo, culturally specific types of interrogation procedures were adopted, such as nudity, the use of dogs and religious abuse, all designed to break the resistance of Arab prisoners that the new extremist factions were born. It's often said that the original sin in the West's relationship with the Middle East was its refusal to deal equally with Israelis and Palestinians. Certainly for many sermonizers, that's the final proof of the Anglo-Saxon world's indifference to Arab and Muslim rights. Robin Cook, in his moving farewell speech to Parliament, also highlighted the foundational centrality of the Palestine issue to current Muslim grievances. But although America's closeness to Israel certainly added to Iraqi humiliation and made collaboration with occupation psychologically more hard, this explanation, too, is not nearly sufficient. Sometimes, too, it is invoked as the solitary master explanation of all the region's woes. The loss of Palestine and the ongoing loss of the remaining Palestinian lands have clearly made it harder for the Islamic world to love the West. There will not be a resolution of this any time soon. But this must never be deployed as an excuse for breaking moral boundaries. To say that all Hamas can do is hit back at Israeli violence, is to, fire missile, is to fire missiles at random civilian targets, is to adopt a purely utilitarian secular calculus driven by humiliation and a longing for revenge. 
And yet we find that the Prophet of Islam, who once found a woman's body on a battlefield, forbade the killing of women and children. This is a scripture narrated by Imam Muslim on unimpeachable authority. Proportionality is a rule in just war theory, so also is what is called discrimination. Again, the Christian scholar John Kelsey, in his book, Arguing the Just War in Islam, has shown in great detail that Islamic law respects the principle of discrimination and opposes the targeting of non-combatants. Just as Jews must condemn Jewish extremists and Christians must condemn Christian extremists, including many on the U.S. evangelical right who have supported violent policies towards the Arab world, so too must Muslims take risks and adopt controversial positions, opposing the logic of rage-driven revenge and tribal solidarity. It may be that the current escalation, whereby every extremism generates one still more extreme, will eventually collapse when the society and economy it seeks to produce turns out to be impossible. The Ottoman scholar I cited earlier explained that the jurist must always seek the lighter and easier interpretation because of the weakness of the people of the age. He was writing in the early 16th century, in a great age of faith. Today, with hedonism, atheism, and a myriad alternative snapping at the heels of religion, all of them only a couple of clicks away, we are clearly weaker still. It seems unlikely that a fanatic religious utopia could last long before collapsing into disillusionment. It's interesting that on Fridays, those who cross the border from Turkey into Iran leave behind them a land where the mosques are full and enter an Islamic republic where, 30 years after the revolution, the mosques seem almost deserted. The Cain and Abel story, a kind of primordial parable of the human tragedy, needs to be read carefully by those who would build holy dictatorships in our time. Religious witness needs to protect our brothers, not only from physical harm, but also from the spiritual assassination that comes through any thoughtless and brutal coercion directed at his or her innermost convictions. Capitalism's entertainment culture may serve as the crow which disposes of the decomposing body of a brother slain by the wrong kind of religious politics. In a few years, we may see many such bodies littering the streets of the Islamic world. Some will be still teaching, working, loving or parenting, but their souls will be dead to religion. Ultimately, some religious scholars themselves may share this fate. What is the end of Selimovic's Bosnian novel? He does not have his protagonist collapsing into public immorality. On the contrary, he ends up being appointed the chief religious judge of his city. But his guilt at his abandonment of his brother has eaten away at his soul, and he is a hollow man, outwardly punctilious but inwardly a ruin. After such a crime, even the man of religion's religion can be no more than a shell, eventually replaced, one guesses, by something else. <laughs>